Proverbs 25, beginning in verse 1, these also are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. Wednesday night, with the conclusion of chapter 24, we concluded, we ended the first edition of the book of Proverbs. Maybe you've never heard of it, spoken of that way, but chapters 1 through 24 are Solomon's Proverbs. The book, anyway, that, that he put together, that he compiled, they are his, Solomon, his Proverbs, there are some Proverbs of other wise men included in there as well. But when Solomon finished that last verse of chapter 24, verse 34 of chapter 24, he would have rolled up the scroll, looked at his work, and said, Done. These are the, Sol- uh, the Proverbs of Solomon. Because it wasn't until 250 years later that Hezekiah's men, or friends as some translations write, that the friends of King Hezekiah came along and they discovered more. They collected and compiled and categorized more than 100 additional Proverbs that now make up chapters 25 through 31. Now I just point that out for a second to say this. There are times in all of our lives where we complete something, we do something, and we say, this is it. This is my work. This is what I'm proud of. This is what I want people to see. What I've accomplished. Chapters 1 through 24. But oftentimes the Lord will say, yeah, but I liked this other thing that you did. It may not be as well known. It may not be as impressive to your own mind. But this I like. I use the example first hour of Jesus loves me. This I know. Not one of the great hymns of the church. Certainly not one of the hottest songs on Christian radio today. And yet, in its simplicity, one of the most sung songs in Christianity. And the Lord has seen fit to say, oh, I I like that one. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong, they are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. So simple and yet so powerful. And I really wonder if when we arrive in heaven, in the presence of Jesus, if the very things that we thought, no, I wouldn't have included that in my book, If those are the things that God will say, ooh, would you read that one? Because I thought that was good. I really like that. Why are chapters 25 through 31 included in the book of Proverbs? Because God wanted them here. Because God is the inspiration of all Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us all Scripture is inspired by God. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. This book claims to be God's Word, God's spoken Word, from Genesis 1, verse 1, to the very end of the book of Revelation, God's Word. You believe that, Pastor? I absolutely do. And we have what we have because God saw fit for it to be here. So the appendix of what we call the Mishle in Hebrew, the Proverbs, the appendix is no less significant, no less inspired. And they must have inspired King Hezekiah. In fact, these opening verses especially, you could call royal Proverbs because they speak about and to the heart of a king. Listen as we read a little further here. Verse 2, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but... The glory of kings is to search out a matter. And that's how it works. God hides, men seek. God conceals, men go searching. Why does the Lord do it this way? Well, the royal Proverbs begin by separating out the great king of heaven who knows all mystery and the puny kings of earth who are still trying to figure it out. 
Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. And so Solomon writes, It is the glory of kings to search out a matter. There is something noble, something glorious, something wonderful about seeking, about searching, about wanting to know what is the truth, what does it really say. Those who are noble-minded are the seekers. Are you noble-minded? Are you hungry for the truth? Are you a seeker today of the Word of God and of the unveiling of God's mysteries? The Bereans were. The Apostle Paul was out on his second missionary journey and he was traveling around and he came to a city called Berea and there in the synagogue met with some of these people and Acts 17.11 says they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the Word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Now, some people would ask, why does God speak in mystery? Why doesn't He just use clear, plain language? Well, let me give you two answers for that. Number one, He does speak in clear, plain language. The Word of God, the Bible, is clear, plain language, but you're not going to get it if you don't read it. And it's astounding how many people have Bibles sitting on the shelves of their homes going, I just don't know what that, the whole Christian thing is a mystery to me. And God, I don't know what He's all about. What does He want from me? What, what, what does He you know, teach? All this, people ask these questions like, well, you know, if you open the book, it's pretty clear. If you will read, God has spoken in clear, plain language. But you've got to open the book to find it. But there's another reason I believe that God does speak to a degree in mystery. Why there are things that have not been revealed to our puny minds. Because God wants us to search. He wants us to look. We get great satisfaction out of it, don't we? I mean, don't you find that, that when you've been trying to figure something out, you've been reading through and setting it down, when you come to an answer, you go, oh, yeah, that's that. That's what He means. And there's satisfaction there. And it makes you hungry for more. See, God knows how we work. And while we are seeking, while we are searching, while with noble minds we seek to know the truth, all the while God is developing faith. It's a marvelous procedure. It's really the procedure that we're all in right now. The development of faith by the Spirit of God as we seek the things of God and He reveals more and more. And it's not that God doesn't want to reveal. He does. He wants you to understand the mysteries. But He's doing it by developing faith. And faith is not the stuff of head knowledge. We talked about this Wednesday. The biblical word for knowledge is about accumulation, whereas the biblical word for wisdom, a higher word, is about application. It's about putting into practice those things that that we've taken in. And so wisdom is better. And wisdom comes by combining searching with faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5 tells us, By faith Enoch was taken up so he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Job understood that. Job was a remarkable man of faith. And he got it right when he said in Job 12.22, God reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deep darkness into light. Because God is a king of revelation. 
how the Bible ends, you know, Revelation. It doesn't end dot, dot, dot. It ends Revelation. And God is the King of Revelation. He wants us to know things. Verse 3 going on, As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. Now this verse on the surface is actually kind of a political truth. That the heart of kings is unsearchable. Bottom line, and what he's saying is, we don't have all the information that the rulers do. Can I just get a show of hands? How many people last week took part in the debt talks in Washington, D.C.? Okay, nobody. How many people have an opinion about how that's going? All right, me too. Here's the deal. We don't have all the info. Regardless of of how you're looking at this thing, whatever side you may be sidling up to, we don't have all the info. We only have what we've been told. The President has information. Congress has information we don't yet have. And I think in all the bantering about and all the political fighting that goes on in our country, and especially the stuff that really riles us up, maybe the best thing we can do is kind of cut them some slack and understand there are things on the table we just don't know. Now, I'm not saying blindly follow your leaders. You know, we should ask questions and we should challenge outcomes. But we don't have all the information. I read the book I shared several uh, months ago, I believe, uh, Decision Points, George W. Bush's book. And I read it just out of curiosity, and there were several things in it where he explained why he did what he did, what, why he made the decisions he made. And several times I was reading it, I was going, oh, I didn't know that. Because I'm not the president. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Our rulers know something, and so the heart of kings, you know, like the heights of the heaven, the depths of the earth, is unsearchable. There are things that they just know. Perhaps we should cut them some slack. I need to say this, by the way, and I want to encourage you all to understand something here. This applies in church leadership as well. Sometimes a children's director or a youth pastor Rarely the senior pastor, but sometimes the senior pastor too has information you don't have. And makes a decision based on information you don't have. You have your information, you have what you bring to the table. But I want to say on behalf of the staff here, before you go making assumptions, cut them some slack. There are things they know that you don't know. They're having to deal with a whole bunch of things you don't have to deal with. So just, you know, cut them a little slack. Assume the best. You know, bring your concerns to them, but but assume that they're doing what they know to be the right thing to do with all the information that they have. Here's the thing we do know. There are things we don't, but there is one thing we absolutely do know. Verse 4, take away the dross from the silver, and there comes out a vessel for the smith. Take away the wicked before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. You want to solve the debt problem in Washington? I'll tell you exactly how to do it. Instead of raising the debt ceiling, how about we raise hands in prayer? That would solve the problem. Instead of opening up reams of paper and spreadsheets, how about opening up the Word of God? Oh, Rick, you're, you're so simple-minded about this stuff. Listen, it is only by righteousness, not my words, but God's word, it is only by righteousness that a nation can be lifted up. Proverbs 14, verse 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And you know what? We have an entire history of mankind to prove that true. 
Every nation that's risen up has eventually fallen, imploded, crumbled, or been conquered as it's gone the way of sin, the root of sin. If righteousness exalts a nation, as the Bible says it does, then as Charles Bridges once wrote, the open acknowledgement of it is a sure path to national prosperity. And I really believe that if we wanted to solve all the problems, truly, of America, but the debt problem, the financial problem, we would begin by getting on our knees and saying, Lord, we repent. And we seek Your faith. And we seek Your righteousness. That would set us on the path of truth. The path of blessing. But we're headed the opposite direction. Thursday, July 14th, 2011. California became the first state in the nation to require gay history to be taught in public schools. I don't know if you all heard about that. Governor Jerry Brown, it came across his desk. They knew it was coming. He signed it into law. Now, what's interesting about this signing into law, something to keep in mind all of us, is that most, if not all, the textbooks that are written for America are written in California and Texas. Which means if it's going into California textbooks, it's very likely it's going to be spreading across the nation very quickly as well. Gay history being taught in the public schools. And listen, I'm not even going to go off on what the Bible says about homosexuality. But ask yourself, is this appropriate Even at the kindergarten level, gay history. Brad Dacus, the head of Pacific Justice Institute, said, in the past, history taught about what people did, what they accomplished. It didn't focus on their sexuality and what they did in the bedroom. I mean, thank goodness we know nothing about Benjamin Franklin's sexuality. Think about how ridiculous it is. If you go back and you look at the founders, do you know anything about them, really? We know what they did. We know what they stood for. We don't know. You know, I don't want to know about the personal sin life. Stuff going on there that should remain hidden. It didn't focus on their sexuality or what they did in the bedroom, yet that is what this legislation will impose on every public school in the state of California dealing with heterosexuality, homosexual role models, transgender role models, all the way down to the kindergarten level. Righteousness exalts a nation. And yet, we're going the other way. Now, I didn't, I didn't ask you all here this morning to discourage you. Actually, I didn't even ask you all here this morning. <laughs> I don't want you to be discouraged. Actually, there's a great piece of news that comes right along with this. Are you ready? The King is coming. Amen. The righteous King is coming. And He's going to make everything right. And He's going to make everything perfect. When Jesus returns, it's going to all be good. And you know what? These royal proverbs invite us to look beyond the kings and governors and rulers and presidents of this world and to really take a look at the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Because in these opening royal proverbs, these first few verses of Proverbs chapter 25, we see King Jesus. Where? I didn't see him there. Listen, only the heart of Jesus fits this royal description, verse 3, as the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. Only the heart of Jesus fits that perfectly. Only Jesus, as high as the heavens, to the very depths of the earth. Paul wrote in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, and unfathomable are His ways. 
Paul wrote in Ephesians 3.18 that we might be able to, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Jesus is the only King with the heart that deep. And so I see Jesus even right there. But verse 4 and 5 go on about taking the dross out of the silver, take away the wicked before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Only the throne of King Jesus fits that description. Only Jesus' throne will ever be established in righteousness. No human throne has ever been established in that kind of righteousness. Perfection. And when Jesus establishes His throne on earth, it will be perfect. After naming Him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah declared this of the Christ. Isaiah 9-7, There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. Jesus' throne is perfect. Jesus' throne Righteous. But along with that righteousness, listen, along with that comes another reality that as His throne is established in rightness, all wickedness will be removed. Every evil, every sin, everything that has caused caused pain and sorrow and heartache and difficulty in your life and mine, all the sin of the world will be taken out. Jeremiah 19, uh, 23 verse 19 says, Behold, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath. Even a whirling tempest, it will swirl down on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until He has performed and carried out the purposes of His heart. In the last days, you will clearly understand this. See, Jeremiah wasn't talking in those verses about Babylon or the fall of Israel. or He was talking about the last days. When wickedness will be put out. Listen, for every wicked choice we make, and I've made a few, it's going to be gone. If you choose in your life to walk the path of wickedness rather than the path of righteousness by the grace of Jesus, guess where you're headed? You will be taken out. That is the end game of all sin choices. You will be taken out. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, He says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Talking about the Holy Spirit through the church. There is a restraining influence that's holding back the tide of evil even now. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That lawless one, Antichrist. I don't have time this morning to go all into Antichrist and to explain their their previous teachings we have on that. Go through the Revelation study and, and you'll be brought up to speed pretty quick. But he goes on and says, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all powers and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, the coming of Jesus will bring with it a flood of righteousness. And that flood of righteousness, like the flood of Noah, is going to wash wickedness off the face of the earth. And it's a sure thing. But before that happens... Before Jesus comes back to establish His perfect righteous kingdom, 
something else is going to take place. And it's what I want to talk to you about for a few minutes this morning. Hold on to your Bibles. Buckle up. We're going off-road. Turn over to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. First book of the New Testament. Matthew 24. I'll pick it up in verse 37. This is Jesus' Olivet Discourse, as theologians like to say. It's the teaching He gave on the Mount of Olives. So He's there on the Mount. Jerusalem is there before them. And He begins to teach and teaches us some fantastic things. He gets to verse 37. Listen to this. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Verse 39. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now I want you to see something here that I think is absolutely critical to understanding what's coming. To the revelation of God's truth which He has for His people. There's a lot of scholarly debate about who Jesus is talking about here. In verse 39, it's pretty apparent. The flood came and took them all away. It's talking about washing the wicked out of the world. But in verses 40 and 41, it's debated that one will be taken and one will be left, and one will be taken and one will be left. He says twice. The two men in the field, the two women grinding at the mill... Who's taken and who's left? Now, some would say it's the wicked who are taken out. Because as you read it, that's the context. The flood came and took them all away. And then Jesus says, one will be taken, one will be left. So obviously, it's got to be the wicked. You know, I sure like the idea that Jesus is talking about the rapture of the church there. In fact, it was verses 40 and 41 that first caught my attention, that first grabbed hold of me to start believing in this teaching, perhaps you've heard of it, called the rapture. The rapture. The idea that before the tribulation happens, before God begins to pour out His wrath on this earth, and He will, Revelation 6-19 through details that for us in a way that has never happened before. Before that happens, that there's an event, a, a catching up, where all those who believe in Jesus will be instantaneously caught up. I want to talk about that for just a minute. But you need to understand, some argue against it. Argue against the idea of the rapture. And on the surface, they make a case. Not a very good one, but they make a case. And the case is simply this. They say, in the context of these verses... It seems to indicate the wicked are being taken out, just as they were in the flood. Besides, they say, the word rapture isn't even in the Bible anyway. Where do you find that word? Well, if we were reading the Latin Vulgate translation, we'd see it. It's raptus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 uses the word raptus. That's where rapture comes from. But if you prefer in the Greek, harpazo. The harpazo. Or if you prefer translated into English, caught up. 
The phrase caught up is harpazo, is rapture. The same phrase is the rapture of the church. That's what that word means, to be caught up. You can use a different phrase if you'd like. You could call it the woohoo. That's okay. Maybe we need to do that. Ray, write a new book. Just call it the woohoo. Right. When we go home to be with Jesus, when we're pulled out, when that happens, really, you really believe that, Rick? I absolutely do. Keep your finger in Matthew 24 and go to the right till you get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to put it into low gear here for a few minutes. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Listen closely to Paul's description and to Paul's words here. Some of you might say, well, Rick, we've been in this section of Scripture many times over the last seven and a half years. Yes, we have. Because, verse 13 begins, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. I saw a movie last night called Insidious. Anybody seen that? Yeah, did you, did you enjoy The Waste of Money? We, we just downloaded it, watched it, and, and, and it's just one of those kind of supernatural thriller type movies. And through the whole thing, the, the thought that kept coming back to me over and over was how foolish Hollywood is with death and end times and things that might happen and what's really going on outside of the physical world and all these guesses. And John was telling me this morning there's a, a movie coming out. What's it called? John Carter? Yeah. Called John Carter that's about a guy who goes to Mars and becomes like a savior in Mars. John Carter. And, and the ad for it started out just with his initials. JC. Oh, no. so, so what's that all about? Well, forgive me if I sound a little paranoid, but I think Satan is still trying to get this world to think in terms of Jesus as a bogus story, to think in terms of the rapture when it happens as an alien abduction, all kinds of just weird movie stuff out there. And we're watching this movie, and again, I was watching it thinking, man, if this just comes from a place that's uninformed. And it was freaky. It was all about this kid who goes into a coma. And, and he's there in the coma, and they finally figure out why he's in a coma. He's not in a coma. He's actually astro-projected himself to another place. <laughs> and we got to get him back. So Dad, who also is an astro-projector, has to go and get the kid and bring him back. I'm just sitting there going, you know, I'm making those sounds through the whole thing. It's ridiculous. And scary as all get out. And that's the other thing. There's nothing scary about that stuff to me anymore because it's so silly. It's so ridiculous. Paul says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep or who have died so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. One other thing. Paul says this five times in the Scriptures. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be uninformed. Five times. He says it about the rapture of the church right here. He says in 1 Corinthians 12.1, I don't want you to be uninformed about spiritual gifts. You should know about that. You should have understanding about that. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. I don't want you to be uninformed about Satan's scheming. Spiritual warfare. You should be aware of that. I don't want you to be uninformed, Romans 11, verses 25 and 26, about God's plan for Israel, which is ongoing. Don't be uninformed about that. And the fifth thing he says I don't want you to be uninformed about in 1 Corinthians 10 is biblical typology. 
What? What? Biblical what? That's the whole thing about every Old Testament story is a New Testament truth. That the rock that the people that, that gave water to the people in the, in the wilderness was a picture of Christ. That walking through the Red Sea was a picture of baptism. That throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, and we've seen this many times, they're all pictures and types of what is to come, that is, of Jesus. And Paul says, so the rapture, spiritual gifts, Satan's schemes, God's plan with Israel, biblical typology, I don't want you to be uninformed. Guess what five things the church is most uninformed about today? Those things. You may even this morning be sitting there and hear me mention one of those things and go, oh, I don't know about spiritual gifts. The Bible's written that you not be left in the dark. That is not supposed to be a mystery to you. And if you're not sure about it, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. Read it. Find out about spiritual gifts. It's all there. God lays it out very clearly. And at the top of this list is the rapture of the church, which is part of the reason I'm covering it today. Verse 14. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, if we believe that, even so, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. What does that tell you right off the bat? It means if you have died in Christ, you will come back with Christ. God's going to bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Those are their spirits. That means the second you die, where's your spirit? With Jesus. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if you die, and if you have loved ones who have died in Christ, guess what? Their spirit right now is with Jesus. They're not thinking about you. They're not mourning their loss with you. They're having a great time with Jesus. They're throwing, worshiping God. And God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Reading on. For this we say to you, that by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, what does that tell you? That there are going to be people alive when Jesus comes. There's going to be a group of people on earth, alive, aware, not dead. There's going to be a group of people who will not die. That's so cool. Read on. (laughs) They will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven, remember bringing with Him the souls of those, the spirits of those who have fallen asleep, will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Uh, um, one little problem. I thought the Lord was bringing with Him those who have died. But now He says the dead in Christ will rise. What are you talking about? The word is necros. It means corpse. Which is another kind of cool thing. I want to see a movie made about this. <laughs> that the corpses are rise up the spirits of the people brought back, put back with the corpse, and no, it's not going to be like zombie fest, you know? Those who have died. And wouldn't that be a bummer? You know, you get the body that comes out of the grave, so for the rest of eternity, you're like, hey. Now, that's not what he's talking about. There's a moment here. It's a twinkling of an eye. It's an instant. But the Bible says we will be glorified. And what happens here, it literally in a split second, a blink of an eye, twinkle of an eye, is in that second, God brings... The spirits, bodies raise up and boom, glorified. Just like Jesus when He resurrected from the dead, now in His glorified body. And then those of us who are wandering around and we're alive at the time, because I fully expect to be, those who are alive at the time will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. It says, then we who are alive, verse 17, and remain will be caught up. Harpazo. Raptured. Raptus. Woohoo. Whatever. We'll be caught up 
together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. These are comforting words. Encouraging words. And Paul says, you need to talk about this. Because this is the hope. It's what he called in Titus 2.13, the blessed hope of every believer. It's what Paul called in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, the twinkling of an eye, that instantaneous change. Now, someone might say, well, that's, that's great and all. That's cool. But, but it's Paul. You know? And Paul, he got a little out there. I mean, he said some stuff I don't even get. Peter didn't understand him. And I like Peter because me and Peter, we're like, you know, peas in a pod. We're like Peters in a pod. Like, I don't know. We're, we're, we're mono we mono. And Peter didn't get Paul. I don't get Paul. And besides, Paul, wasn't he kind of a chauvinist, ladies? I mean, you know? No, he wasn't. And we'll talk about that when we get into his letters. But for those who are, you know, let's indulge the critic just a little bit longer. Go back to Matthew 24. Because there are those who would say, okay, I see Paul said that. I want to hear it from the lips of Jesus himself. Fair enough. Although since all Scripture is inspired by God, you just did. But let's just go back to the red letters. Okay? Matthew 24, verse 39 again, listen. They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and one will be left. And so it sounds like in the context, perhaps... Perhaps this taking is the taking out of wickedness. Although, although, and this just hit me, at the time of the flood, if two men were in the field, who would be wiped out by the flood? Not one taken, but one left, right? You you don't want to be left when the flood comes. So, even that seems a little odd. But in our language, we read this and we say, oh, I'm, I'm confused by this. What is he talking about here? I am personally convinced that while verse 39 is talking about the wicked who are taking out at the second coming of Jesus, that verses 40 and 41 are talking about the rapture of the church, which happens at least seven years before the second coming of Jesus. I'm talking about a pre-tribulation Rapture. Oh! You're one of those pre-tribbers. Yes, I am. Because, and listen to me, because if you take the Bible literally, it is the only perspective that is literal. Every other perspective about how things are going to happen in the end times, in the last days, with the coming of Jesus, every other perspective requires that you make things metaphorical or allegorical to some degree. Only a pre-tribulation perspective is literal Bible. Just the way it's written chronologically, the way it comes out. And there's more to it here. And the whole idea of pre-tribulation, what does that mean? It means first believers are caught up, raptured. Then, at some point, right after that, soon after that, Israel signs a covenant with with a, a world leader, Antichrist. And that kicks off a seven year tribulation. At the end of that seven-year tribulation, Jesus the King returns believers with Him and He puts down all wickedness and sets up His righteous kingdom which will exist, which will last on earth a thousand years. Where did you get that, Rick? Book of Revelation, go through the study. Okay, Revelation 20, six times in Revelation 20 speaks of that thousand-year kingdom reign of Jesus Christ. 
Why do I believe that? And, and why would Jesus, after comparing His second coming to the flood, verse 39, which took the wicked away, why would He suddenly shift over and start talking about the rapture? How, how would we... Why does He do that? Well, this is my opinion. My opinion. I think Jesus is sneaking in a word of comfort in the midst of judgment. I think what he's saying here, and here's some of that mystery that needs some unveiling, needs some revealing, and we will in just a second. But I think what Jesus is saying is they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. By the way, two are going to be grinding at the mill and one's going to be taken out. Two are going to be you know, in the house or in the field and one's going to be taken up. There are going to be people taken out before this happens. Now, Rick, are you reading into this? I don't believe I am. There's more to it. Remember now what Solomon said in these opening verses of Proverbs 25. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search it out. So let's be noble for just a second here. There's a hidden treasure in Jesus' words. If we were listening to Jesus' teaching, right now, in His language, if we were just listening, we probably would have caught it a lot better than we do in our translation. Let me explain. Verse 39 says the flood came and took them all away. The Greek word for took in that verse is airo. Airo, which literally means to take away from the living, to cause to cease to exist. Okay? Airo. That's the way that word is used. Jesus used the word in John 10.18 talking about His own life. He says, No one has taken it away from Me. No one has taken My life. You know? Airo. To take away from the living. He says, I lay it down on my own initiative. That's the word that he uses in verse 39. Suddenly, for verses 40 and 41, Jesus uses a different word. When he says, one will be taken and one will be left. One will be taken and one will be left. The word taken there in the Greek is paralambano. Which is a great word. Paralambano. Can you just say that with me? Paralambano. See, you've just spoken Greek. And when you go home today, someone can say, hey, what was the sermon about? I don't know, it was Greek to me. (laughs) Paralambano means, listen, it means to take with. Not to take away, not to cause to cease, but to take with, to catch hold of, or to receive something to yourself. That word, paralambano, is only used three other times in the New Testament. Three other times, listen to these three verses where it's used. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Paralambano. So the context there is to take a bride. Take a bride, Joseph. Second time it's used, Matthew 17, verse 1, tells us that Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. They saw him in his glorified state. Jesus paralambanoed Peter, James, and John, took them with him up the mountain to see him glorified. Just those two verses alone are stunning. When does the bride of Christ see the glory of the groom? At the rapture. At the rapture, when we are taken up, when we are caught up. That's when the bride sees the groom for the first time. 
Maybe the most compelling verse to me is is this one. The third time it's used, John 14, verse 3, where Jesus says, If I go prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you to Myself. Paralambano. That where I am, there you may be also. These words, what they speak, what they're telling us, game, is that the wicked are taken out. Aero, taken out. But believers in Jesus are taken with. Paralambano, taken up, received by Jesus to himself. Which is what Jesus is talking about in Luke 21.36. Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. There is a great escape. There is a moment coming where the King will call to His people and His people will go. A great escape, an escape from the tribulation that is promised to come. And those who escape all these things will be caught up to be with the Lord. Now, the critic, the naysayer, might say, that's that's just fantastical. I mean, it really is. Uh, Hollywood could do something with that. I mean, that's just one of those weird ideas about people being pulled out. I mean, maybe it's not alien abduction, it's Jesus abduction, but it's weird, you know. Where's the precedence for it? You want precedence? Well, three names. Enoch. Enoch, who we started out with earlier, we heard the verse. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. First man raptured. There's your precedence right there. Elijah. And I love the story of Elijah, who was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. I mean, he did it with some flash and panache, i got to say. That's how I want to go. You know, the time of the rapture, could I have one of those flaming horses just to... Elijah. You know, by the way, side note on this. Right after that happened... Something else interesting happened. His protege, Elisha, is walking along, and some teenagers <laughs> called out, Go on up, you bald head! They did. They called him a bald head. And Elisha, who is increasingly my hero, said, <laughs> Elisha said, called down some bears, and they came out of the woods and mauled the teenagers. <laughs> Amen. You you know what what Mark Twain says about teenagers? When they turn 13, put them in a box with some air holes. When they turn 16, plug up the air holes. That was his idea. No, no, teens, we love you guys. We do. I, I once was one of you, so. But listen, listen, the reason I tell you that is not the bald headed part of it, it's the other thing that these youths were saying to Elisha. Go on up! Go on up! They were mocking the fact that Elisha was saying Elijah had been raptured. Elijah had been taken up. Elisha was the only witness of this. So Elisha comes back. Where's Elijah? Well, he was taken up in a fiery chariot. Oh, go on up, you bald head! Just making fun of the fact that there might be a catching up that would happen. We see the same thing today. And I am calling down bears, but they're not coming. I don't know. <laughs> Enoch, Elijah. I won't get into it this this morning, but the Apostle Paul was caught up. Saw amazing things that he didn't even attempt to describe. But there's one more, and I want you to see it. Turn over to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. 
Just two verses, but you got to see this with your own eyes. I love the book of Revelation. Have I told you that before? This is a great book, and it is Revelation unveiling. Apocalypsis does not mean a disaster. It means unveiling. And that's what this book is about, is unveiling what God is going to do, unveiling the truth of it. And it's a remarkable, remarkable book. And when you land at chapter 4, what's happened so far in the book, chapter 1 is Jesus revealed in all of His glory... Chapters 2 and 3, letters to seven churches that I believe have prophetic significance that you could almost see laid out over the church of the last 2,000 years. And then suddenly chapter 4 and chapter 5, the church, well, I believe the church is in heaven. You see a scene of heaven. That's amazing. And then suddenly from chapters 6 through 19, even though the church is mentioned over and over and over, seven times in chapters 2 and 3, from chapters 6 to 19 in Revelation, no church. It's not mentioned a single time. It's just gone. Where is it? And in chapter 19, Jesus comes back and the bride rides with him. So that's one of the reasons I believe in the way this thing is laid out. But listen to what John says, verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet, speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately, John says, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. John was caught up. John, in that moment, was raptured and was taken literally to the throne room of heaven where he saw. And for the next two chapters of Revelation, describes what he saw. And it's amazing. It's stunning. It's an incredible scene. And it it impresses me at how much these couple of verses parallel what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18. Sound of a trumpet. You know, and a voice calling out. But here, John tells us what the voice says. Come up here! He says, I can't wait to hear those three words. I am looking forward to that. To Jesus calling up. Come up here. Come to where I am. Come away, my ambassadors. Which is, by the way, that's what you do. When a war is about to take place, you pull the ambassadors out before the attack. Which is exactly what I think will happen. The church is caught up, pulled out before. As Jesus says, come up here. What does all this rapture talk have to do with Proverbs 25? That's a great question. Why don't we turn back there and see? Proverbs 25. And keep in mind what John saw and heard. Keep in mind what John saw and heard when he was caught up to heaven. And listen to this. Proverbs 25, verse 6. Do not claim honor in the presence of the king. And do not stand in the place of great men, for it is better that it be said to you, come up here, than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. Come up here. Come up here. It is better to hear the king call, come up here, than than to be placed in a lower position. Three simple words. The king will call out, and as Paul wrote, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Come up here. Three of the best words that will ever be spoken. Come up here. Who wants to go? 
I can't wait to hear it. But if you want to go, I have another question for you. Are you fit for the king? Are you? Are you fit for the king? Jesus told a parable. I'm going to just read it to you quickly in Luke chapter 14. A parable that literally explains this proverb. He obviously is drawing from this proverb when he says, Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 7, he began speaking a parable to the invited guests. This is at one of the Pharisees' house. They're all there invited to eat. And he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. And so Jesus said to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, interesting, to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been may have been invited by him, and he who invited both you both will come to you and say, "Ah, give your place to this man." And then, in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, "Friend, move up higher." And then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. What does this mean? If you want to go up, you've got to bow down. If you want to be fit for the king, it begins right here and right now with humbly bowing down and accepting the lordship of Jesus Christ. Accepting him as your king, as your master. That's why we talked about what we did last week. And if you weren't here, you might want to listen to the teaching. We talked about drinking. And we talked about what the Bible has to say about it. Not, not some pastor's take on it. Not some guilt-tripping, you know, churchy thing. What does the Bible say about it? And what does Paul say about our freedom in Christ? He says, I, all things are lawful for me, but, he says, I will not be mastered by anything. I'm not going to be mastered by anything. Nor am I going to use my freedom to take away someone else's freedom. And I share with you that this was last week was hard teaching for me. Not because I'm a drunk, <laughs> but because I have a lot of friends, good Christian people, who are very, very measured in their drinking. I haven't. I've always felt myself. I'm free in Christ. I want to be free in Christ. I don't want to make people uncomfortable when I'm around. You know. So if the wine is being served, pour me a glass. I'll sip on it. No big deal. I don't want to. I don't want to be that guy. You know. I want to be that rigid religious guy. And then we came to Proverbs 23, and I'm not going to go back over that right now. But we came to it, and, and it was like the brakes hit. And I look over in Proverbs 31. It's not for kings, O Lemuel, or rulers to drink wine and forget what they're supposed to be doing. And I started thinking about these things and saying, wow, look, I'm saved by grace. I know when Jesus calls I'm going home, but I want to be fit for my king. I want to be in good shape when he calls. I don't want to be flying out of here with my pants on fire, you know, just barely getting out. I want to be called up and I want to hear him say, well done, Rick, good job. I I don't don't want to impress anyone else. I want to impress him. I want to be fit for my king. And it starts, listen, it starts with bowing down. It starts with proclaiming him as Lord. 
And then following Him with a noble heart, seeking out the truth, not the lies from Hollywood and the world and the media, seeking out the truth of God's Word, being in the Word so you know all these things, what we've talked about and so much more. And I want to go down that road. And Cheryl and I talked about it long before I, I, I preached it last week. We've been talking about it and struggling with it. And, and, I, and I, Again, I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable, but I've got to do what I know to be right before the Lord because I want to be fit for the King. He's going to say, come up here. Are you ready? Are you ready to hear those three words? Or are you saying, look, I just need another couple of weeks <laughs> of my kind of living. And then, cool, you know, I'll straighten it out eventually. Are you fit for the king? I'll tell you who was. Enoch was fit for the king. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Genesis 5.24 Hebrews 11.5 Again, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. How did, why? Why did God do that? The Hebrew writer tells us, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. He was pleasing to God. Enoch, the first man raptured, heard the, the king say, come up here. He heard Jesus say, friend, move higher up. Come on home. Come on to the feast. I want you to be the first one in the door. Enoch has that singular distinction to be the first one, the first man Never to die. That's just marvelous. Why? Because he was pleasing to the Lord. He was pleasing to the Lord. Was he not perfect? Probably not. But he was pleasing. And that's the issue, gang. Not that we be perfect, but that we pursue righteousness. Not that we be self-righteous, but that we be pleasing. In all of our decisions, listen, whatever sin it is that you struggle with right now, Whatever the big one is that's kind of got hold of you, I want you to look at it and think in terms of, is this more important to me or would I rather be fit for the king? How can I be found pleasing? How can I be fit? Listen, it's very simple. You've got to bow down. You bow down. You start there. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So you start in faith in Jesus. Paul said, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is better for it to be said to you, come up here, than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the Prince. Let's bow. Oh, Jesus, uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to hear anything else. I just want to hear those three words out of your mouth. Come up here. Come up here. And Lord, I want to be ready when you call. I want my heart to be changed and sanctified. Altered from the way it is. I don't, I don't want to walk in, in the stupid decisions, the foolishness that comes from myself. I want to be like you. And I pray for the strength to be like You. To be cleansed and again sanctified. Oh, thank You for Your grace, Lord Jesus. I thank You that every single person in this barn this morning who cries out, Jesus Christ is Lord, who believes in Your resurrection, I thank You that every one of us will be saved when You call. But I pray that You will take us beyond that salvation and into sanctification, into lives that are being altered so that we're not like the world. Different enough so people want what we have, which is the light 
of the glory of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, make this fellowship a light to Your name. Light of truth. And I pray for each and every one of us, Holy Spirit, that You would change our hearts. Make us like You. In Jesus' name. Amen.